This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. Great to have your company again for LifeWords Q&A. David Ray, Andrew Morris with you for the next 20 minutes or so where we get to chat about life and faith and how it all relates as Christians to uh, the Bible, God's Word, and living out each day. David, uh, again, thanks for joining us. Good day, Andrew. Thanks. Now, ahead of us, three questions yet again uh, submitted by listeners to the podcast. We'll be looking at people, uh, at a person who has thought about giving up on church, um, what it means t- uh, to say that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and also the Song of Solemns, that racy book in the Bible, Why Does It Exist? Uh, that's ahead of us. Uh, question one, David. Um, the listener is asking, I've just given up on church. What can I do so that my own faith doesn't suffer as a result? Now, this is such a disturbingly common statement. I think so many people have the same question. I know a number of genuine Christians who feel that way. They're just about giving up on church. But let's let's look at it. Some people give up on church because of sad abuse experiences, and I can understand that. But others give up because they're shallow consumers who want what they want and aren't prepared to live in an imperfect community. In other words, they've they've invested the church with some idealistic sort of quality and given up on it because someone looked at it the wrong way or all my needs haven't been met. And yet others carry around lots of personal baggage and they find the church doesn't remove it. And so they give up. And so I think there's real concerns about people giving up on church for that that, that, that reason. But others I know, and I'm, maybe I'm assuming this questioner is in this category, they have genuinely made attempts to get involved and be changed by the church community, but they find church irrelevant, tedious, controlling and impersonal. And I can't come into all those issues, but let's focus on the fact that this questioner seems to really want to grow in faith and yet it's just about giving up on church. But my first comment is that you can't, can't grow in faith in isolation. In other words, um, if you think, oh, well, I've given up on church, I'm just going to do it on my own, I'd want to say to this questioner, no, you can't, no, you won't, please don't do that, because the scriptures are pretty clear, you can't be a solo Christian. Oh, sorry, you you can be a solo Christian, but you can't grow as one. Well, Jesus talks about when two or three gathered together in my name, and in terms of prayer and all that kind of stuff, there is a lot of, I mean, the whole New Testament is all about Community, community. It, it, it's community. That, that that's exactly right. Ephesians four is the classic text of that. Um, we are meant to grow up in Christ as each part of the body does its work. In other words, I can't grow unless I'm engaged in Christian community, and the Christian community can't grow unless I'm engaged in it. So there is an impetus there for us to be involved. Um, so you need to find some other Christians to have some time with so you can help one another to grow. That's what I'd say to this question. Are you yeah. just giving up on church? I'd say, well, hang on, not so fast. But that leaves my second comment, even though I've said, yes, you can't go in faith and isolation, but I'm not simply saying you must immediately go back and march to your nearest church on a Sunday morning and be involved in it. Because well, that would well, that'd really be wonderful if you could. But at least for a while, it may be that you meet outside the normal Sunday church environment. And I, I, I personally meet with some Christians pretty regularly who are struggling with church and yet who love the idea of um, fellow Christians gathering together to pray and support and to uh, read the scriptures. So it may be that this questioner, I'd say, well, if you've just about given up on church for whatever reason, um, try at least to get one or two others to regularly meet and pray and reflect on scripture. Because while I think it's better to be part of a wider body for various reasons, and I can't go into now, um, at least try to get some fellowship. And maybe in time you will find a church again, but maybe this small group of people who meet outside the normal what we 
we call church environment, may be the things to um, sustain you. I do sympathise with people who are in this predicament. I don't sympathise with people who are consumerists who just simply want the church to solve all their problems and all that. I, 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 I don't. I, I really want to say to those people, "Come on, grow up." <laughs> you know, life's not like that. But I, I think so many people I talk to have given up on church because of sterile preaching. The minister preaches for a long time, but it's hardly relevant and mm. can't un- understand what he or she's saying anyway. Shallow fellowship which doesn't really get to the heart of who you are. You're not weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. Endless demands on time and energy. I hear this from people again and again. I go to church in order to be to be lifted up and encouraged, but all I'm getting is unceasing demands on my time. You've got to do this, you've got to do that. Passionless worship where, where you know, there's not much engagement with a felt sense of the presence of God. I can sympathise with people giving up on church for those reasons. However, I still want to say, depending on where you live, and if this person's in some isolated country town, well, well, that's a different matter. But depending on where you live, I think there are churches around that have a place for you. And I think sometimes we can give up too quickly. I mean, I, you might have tried one or two churches um, that, that fall into that sad category that I've just listed. Um, but hey, come on, let's not be too proud about it. Um, there will be other churches where you can find a degree of um, uh, community and encouragement. Um you know, I'd, I'd almost—it's it's a bit hard to say this, but it's almost a bit like getting married, isn't it? Um, you don't want to be too choosy. You're never going to find the perfect person. But then again, hey, you've got to—you've got to find someone that's—that you feel is—is—is is, is appropriate. Um, uh, so, so in terms of choosing a church, don't don't be too choosy because you, you've got to recognise imperfections. Don't become idealistic. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German Christian, said that idealism is the death of Christian community. And yeah. what he was saying was, as soon as you idealise the church or another Christian, you're going to be disillusioned and disappointed. So be realistic. But at the same time, yeah, you shouldn't have to put up with ongoing sterile preaching, shallow fellowship, endless demands on time and energy, passionless worship. You shouldn't have to put up with that. But then again, there are churches which will differ and, 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 and will be able to offer you the things that you're looking for. I think if you're in a church environment that... Um fosters honest and open communication, hopefully you're in a position where you could openly express your feelings uh, and your thoughts of maybe how to do things a little bit better in a way that's not going to, you know, in a a way that's, you know, constructive and and not attacking the the, the minister and the leadership team. Agreed. Speaking as a pastor of churches over the years, I I, I think... I, I'm never too bothered if someone comes up to me and says, listen, I, I just think there's some real issues we've got in the church. Can we talk about it and see how we can make it better? I, I think you're absolutely right. But the the questioner may well be in that situation where the lines of communication are not that open. They feel pa- powerless because the leadership is remote. And in a particularly bigger churches, that can be the case. The leadership is rather remote. Or even in smaller churches, the leadership can be controlling and even um, dictatorial uh, so that you don't feel free to be able to raise these objections or the minister or the pastor or the leader, whoever it is, gets very defensive. And so that's sad. That's why church leaders need to be always 
open to people who were saying, look, I'm a bit dissatisfied here to explore. Is this dissatisfaction merely an expression of thwarted ego or consumerism? In which case, you know, sorry, we can't do much about that apart from rebuke it. But there could be really legitimate issues. And therefore, the leader and such a person as this who's asked us this question can get together in partnership and say, how can we make this better? And that's good leadership. But sadly, it's not always evident in all churches. Yeah, just uh, as a final um, observation, I was listening to a podcast and it was with an American author, Brian Zahn, I think. And he'd done his most recent book is Postcards from Babylon, which is uh, he's American. He's looking at America anyway. Uh, I think he did some research and uh, the studies were looking at Christians that have been outside of church, um, who who, have been dissatisfied with church, who have got families, that their children, the rate of those children becoming or not becoming Christian or losing their faith and never getting it back again is really, really high. And this is not a guilt thing, but... I guess what he was saying is, even if church is imperfect, uh, when your children aren't involved in that uh, environment and hearing and, and being exposed to it, the, the, the likelihood of them then going on to be Christians later in life is very low. This is one of the problems that this questioner might have. I don't know what their personal family circumstances are, but yes, it's all right if I, as I do say, try to get together with a few people and that, that will sustain you for a while. But hey, yes, if you've got kids... Where are they going to be mixing? Where, What sort of Christian community can they be involved with? So some people who say, let's withdraw from the wider church and create our own little small group, that's fine. That, 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 that can be good in a way. But yes, it does raise the issue of what happens to the children or younger people. Where is their Christian peer group? Uh, and so it's a. I think you're onto something there, or you're, that author you mentioned is onto something, because uh, if we do withdraw from the wider church, we are not necessarily just affecting ourselves, we are affecting our family because um, our younger people, our children need to grow up and observe Christian community in action. That's why I think it would be important for a questioner like this to say, okay, you know, just, just lick your wounds for a while if you need to, but hey, try to get back into a community where not only you, but your, if you've got children or younger people, um, where they can be supported. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A, Andrew Morris, David Ray, and we've got two more questions on this episode to go. If you'd like to revisit old episodes, head over to hope1032.com.au. Also, you can go to the iTunes store and search for LifeWords Q&A and find many episodes there as well. David, our second question uh, questioner is asking, what does it mean to say the Bible is the inspired word of God? Yeah, this is where we tackle a, a a common problem that the Bible might use or use a certain word which has a slightly different meaning. We say something's inspired um, in terms of an emotional response to something. That was an inspiring song or an inspiring sporting performance and so on. Um, But all the word inspire means here is that it's God-breathed. It literally means to breathe out. And so all scripture is God-breathed. So what I think the, that ver- and the verse comes from 2 Timothy 3.16 is saying that the Old Testament scriptures have their origin in God. They're not man-made. In other words, Paul is saying to Timothy, look, these Old Testament scriptures we have, uh, that, that, that they're not just simply man-made constructions. Um, God, they have their origin in God. God breathed them out. But um, the men who wrote them were writing according to their literary style and in their cultural context. Um, God was not dictating. He didn't say to Paul or to Jeremiah or someone, 
write this down so much, although there could have been a few instances where that that, that might have happened. But in general, all God was saying is, um, this is what I want to communicate to people. Please, you communicate it in a way that is appropriate and understandable within your cultural context. So in, in the end, I believe what the, it means that the Bible is the inspired word of God is that what we end up reading in the Bible is what God wanted to put there. Um, and he put it there by, we can't define it precisely, but by working on the authors in such a way that what they wrote was what was the heart and mind and will of God. Um, so so, so people who read the original language would see, for example, that Paul has uses Greek in a very different way to Luke, who is a different way to Peter and so on. And, and some of these writers have a certain style about them and a different style. God's not trying to squash all that. Um, so, so God, in some way, works through our own human skills and memories and passions to communicate something of Himself to us. It's, it's just a little byproduct of this question, but God is quite happy to adapt Himself to the culture and the personality of His writers, so that when certain writers are describing certain things, particularly in the Old Testament, we think, "Oh, God must approve of it." Not necessarily. Uh, God is simply adapting himself and having these authors write within their own scientific, cultural and historical um, limitations. <laughs> and was, that, that's why we find the Bible puzzling. And I think it's great. That's why uh, like a study Bible, an NIV or something that can explain uh, concepts and words mm. that are used in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament – relating back to the time and place that it was written that's right, that's just right. opens mm. up the meaning of a passage like you go oh i never knew that that's right whether yeah the bible is hard to understand i mean anyone who says oh the bible's a piece of cake no it's not it's not of a sort i've i've studied the bible for well over 40 or 50 years and it's still puzzling to me in many respects and i'm still sort of scratching my head about some things and changing my mind on some things um, you see, yet God didn't override the humanity of the writers, whisking them of the 21st century to speak in our own terms. As I said to any churches that I passed, God never, ever, ever wrote a letter to you. He wrote a letter to the Ephesians or the Galatians or something like that. And through the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the church community, we can perhaps apply that to ourselves. But as we know, so many Christians, you know, understand the Bible a different way. And it, it, it frustrates me sometimes to see hear people saying to me, well, David, you know, all we've got to do is to get back to the Bible. Well, yes, we do have to get back to the Bible. What happens when you get back to the Bible and um, you see it rather differently? And again, God, God seems to be not too worried about that. He seems to say, well, yes, it's, it's a, there are some things that are not clear. But I think that, that particular text, that two Timothy text says, the Bible is useful for, for, for training in righteousness to tell us how to get right with God and how to live for God. And I think it doesn't mislead us on that at all. But there are many parts of it that are puzzling simply because God has decided not to transcend history and culture and so on, but rather to live within. In other words, the, the person who wrote Genesis, for example, was not endowed with 21st century knowledge of mm. astronomy or biology or geology and so on. Not to say that um, the writer of Genesis is writing nonsense, but the writer of Genesis is simply writing according to the mindset and the knowledge that he had, had, had in his day, and God seems to be quite happy with that. 
David Ray, you mentioned the word puzzlement, and that leads us to question number three. Uh, our, our third question is from a listener, and uh, they've said, I've always been puzzled about why Song of, Solomon, Song of Solomon is in the Bible. It seems like a normal love poem, but people tell me it's really about Jesus. Okay, David. Well, yes, the book seems a bit out of place, isn't it? I confess, I have a confession here. I've never preached on the Song of Solomon. I've preached on many books in the Bible, but never the Song of Solomon. And I have to ask myself, why is that? Um, it is at first glance a love poem, um, erotic in our truest and purest sense of the word. Now, I'm going to use the word erotic a bit here. And I don't mean the word erotic to mean pornography. I mean erotic in terms of sensual, physical love in the best sense of the, of, of the word. And you see, if you think that a, an erotic love poem is out of place in the Bible, well, perhaps our understanding of erotic love is somehow twisted by what we're seeing around us today. In other words, mentioning the word erotic love from a Christian pulpit and you might have people sort of fainting in the aisle sort of thing. But but really, there's nothing wrong with erotic love and writing about it in its proper context. I mean, God invented sex. And uh, we ought not be surprised if sex figures prominently in at least one book of the Bible. Now, of course... Some people, as this question suggests, some people are uncomfortable with this and over the years spiritualised the book and said, oh, really, it's not referring to the terrible sexual erotic things. No, 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 no. It, it's really talking about Jesus and his people. Well, yeah, it has some truth in it because uh, elsewhere, in when Paul writes uh, to the Ephesians, the love of husband and wife is linked to Jesus and the church. Yes, there's a bit of a parallel there. Uh, but but there's no reason to dismiss the most obvious interpretation of that book. When I read the Song of Songs, uh, the Song of Solomon, um, I, I read it, and it obviously comes across as an erotic love poem. Um, and um, I, I, to spiritualise it and to say, oh, it's not really about erotic love at all; it's about Jesus, is I think to downplay the significance and the value of what we might call true, good, pure. Erotic love. There's a lot of bad erotic love around the place, of course. So, but, so the, the the bigwigs back in the day who decided what books would go into the Bible that we know today, and they chose not to put other books in the Bible. Why did they choose this one? Well, good point. I, 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 you know, you might read some books of the so-called apocrypha, which were part of the Greek. Old Testament rather than the Hebrew Old Testament, which the Protestant church tradition doesn't have in their Bibles, though the Catholic tradition does. And you read some of those books and you think, well, they're probably a bit more holy, as it were, than the Song of Songs. But yeah, it's a good point. Why did they put the Song of Solomon in? Well, one reason is, I think, because the authorship has been attributed to Solomon and therefore, well, if it's whatever Solomon wrote must be okay, yeah. uh, even though he had so many wives. Um, but, but yes, it's a bit lost in, in, the, in, in the mists of time, that, but it seems that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the, the people of God, way back in the times before Jesus, um, thought that this was good enough to be in there. And I think that says something. I don't think they had it in there simply because it pointed to Jesus. Uh, that would be rather silly because they, they, Jesus wasn't around at that time. But I think these people put it in there because they thought, well, this is a valid perspective. This is a valid viewpoint. This is a valid subject because this writer is celebrating, ultimately, I believe, um, the physical feelings one can have for another. Now, of course, we know from the New Testament and even the Old Testament that, yes, physical feelings have to be expressed in a proper context and all that sort of thing. We're not talking about wild promiscuity here. I don't think the Solomon urges us to have sexual orgies and 
uh, be sexually indiscriminate. We are talking about people who are celebrating erotic love within a committed relationship. And if we have a problem with that being in the Bible, I think we might have to rethink our whole attitude to human sexuality. I wish I could add something, but I can't. David, thank you so much for exploring the Bible with us and how it relates to um, our life. And thank you for being with us for the last uh, 20 minutes or so. I hope you've enjoyed the three questions. If you've got a question that's been on the top of your mind that you just don't have an answer to or it just intrigues you, why don't you send David an email? His email address is lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. And uh, it could be tackled when we next catch up with LifeWords Q&A. David, thanks very much. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be here. See you soon. Thanks for listening. Start your day with LifeWords. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.